Welcome to Shot Reverse Shots Alternate 100 Part 6. Um, we are uh, blazing a trail through this 100. Um, uh, it feels like this is the roller coaster that just can't be stopped at. Yep, this is going to be the best Part 6 since Leonard Part 6. Well, that's a bold claim, and legally, <laughs> uh, I must remind listeners that, uh, yeah, we can't really bang that up, so. You know, we are covered under fair use. I think. Yeah, I think that's how fair use works. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we here at Shot Reverse, we have a very loose grasp <laughs> of the law uh, and legal things in general. Um, but yeah, anyway, let's let's hear the jingle and just crack on. The alternate one hundred. Okay, um, the first film. Uh, we're going to talk about um, in our uh, part six here is uh, a film from 1955. We're talking about Robert Aldrich's Kiss Me Deadly. What's this all about? I'll make a quick guess. You're out with some guy who thought no was a three-letter word. I should have thrown you off that cliff back there. I might still do it. Where are you headed? Los Angeles. Drop me off the first bus stop. You always go around with no clothes on? We've had quite a few film noirs on this list so far. Um, this one kind of falls a little later uh, than some of the kind of more archetypal film noirs we were talking about that, that kind of came out in kind of uh, mid to late 40s. This one's kind of mid-50s film, and it's brutal as fuck, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that that was towards the end of the production code. It wouldn't really fall apart until the mid-60s, but I think it had been weakened a fair bit by that point. Uh, but even within the terms of a week in production code, it's kind of hard to imagine how they got away with some of the... I mean, some of it's through suggestion, mm. such as there is a shot where a man is uh, doing something to a woman, I believe it's Cloris Leachman's character, and you just kind of see her feet kind of twitching. Uh, but like even that in itself is kind of horrifying, just leaving you to imagine what's happening. And then seeing the character of Mike Hammer go around beating the absolute living fuck out of everyone. <laughs> mm. he, he's kind of like a prototype Batman in his kind of investigative mm. uh, techniques in that he just finds someone, asks them a question, and then when they don't answer him, he just grabs them and slaps them around a bit and just asks it louder. Yeah, you can imagine that Frank Miller masturbates furiously to Kiss Me Deadly every night. Mm. Uh, it's interesting. And not legally, not saying that he does, <laughs> say that uh, you can imagine that. Yes, if you mean. yeah. It's interesting you said that, like, the bit with Cloris Leachman's character is kind of suggested because she is tortured to death on screen. Mm. It's just we see the entire thing played out by four characters' legs. So we see the yeah. woman's legs waggling, the two legs of the men holding her down, and then the blue suede shoes of the incredibly sinister person who has, uh, yeah, done her in. Um, it's, it's so hard-edged. Um, and it's also different from those other films that we're talking about, the other kind of 40s noirs, is that it really taps into that kind of 50s kind of nuclear paranoia, uh, especially with the uh, the much uh, kind of heralded and talked about MacGuffin that, uh, that drives the film's plot. And there is a lot of plot in this film. Yeah, I think in that regard, it's probably one of the more influential film noirs in that 
people have ripped off its central image of a glowing briefcase uh, multiple times. In fact, a film later on in this top ten rips it off quite uh, expertly. Yeah. But yeah, you can see it in things like Pulp Fiction and uh, Indiana Jones and the um, no, sorry, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it's uh, it's a very kind of powerful, potent image, but it's more potent for what it represents, which is this power that people don't really understand, but they know can, you know, destroy everyone around them. Now, they do get explo- exposed to uh, a fair deal of, of horrible stuff in that film, not just within the, the briefcase, but, you know, Mike Hammer uh, deals out a lot of terrible things as well. He's not really that likeable a character. No, he's a dick. He's a real dick. I found it interesting uh, that the, the screenwriter, whose name was uh, A.I. Buzz, Bezerides uh, is a great name. Any anyone who has buzz in uh, quotation marks is all right by my by me. Mm-hmm. Um, he when he adapted it, he said that he had utter contempt for the source material. <laughs> wow! Um, because you know the character Mike Hammer is, and Mickey Splain's writing in general is sort of hard edged to the point of being unpalatable uh, in a lot of cases, and it's it's just really really cruel and vaguely fascist <laughs> and um, and I think he just kind of wanted to make a film that he said he wanted every scene and every character to be interesting which I think he succeeded in um, but he also I think in some way wanted to satirise the very thing that Mickey Splane did in kind of a way of uh, by kind of point pushing everything to the most extreme it could be uh, and I think that's very interesting because I can't think of many instances where someone has out and out said, yeah, I wrote this film and I absolutely hated the thing I was adapting. Um, I, w- I just have to say that the vaguely fascist sounds like a magazine that someone would subscribe <laughs> to. Can I have a barely legal and a vaguely fascist, please? Um, I think it's something that characters in Nathan Barley would probably read. Yeah, quite possibly. Um, but yeah, Kiss Me Deadly, uh, a kind of a different, you know, even though the films are only 10 years apart, like something like Out of the Past we watched last week, they're so markedly different. Yeah, that one uh, at least portrays its, its central character who is a killer and who is someone who is not unfamiliar with violence. You know, he at least has a sense of sympathy and maybe he is he could be redeemed at some point through his actions. Uh, even though he kind of isn't, you know, there's still a possibility. I don't think there's any chance in Kiss Me Deadly that Mike Hammer could have been anything other than just a raging arsehole. Mm, yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, he drives a incredibly dense and labyrinthine plot, um, which <laughs> is immensely fun to lose yourself in. So, yeah, Kiss Me Deadly, uh, first film to talk about this week. Uh, our second film, uh, we talked about uh, History of Violence last week, David Cronenberg film. We talked about how, um, even though it wasn't a huge shift, if you kind of peel back the layer from uh, David Cronenberg's um, previous work, the film we're going to talk about this week by David Cronenberg is probably his probably archetypal film. Uh, we're talking about uh, his film from 1986, uh, The Fly. Yeah, if they're not working on something that'll change the world as we know it. They say they are. Yeah, but they're lying. Um, is it fair to say that if you were going to say, kind of pick, someone, if someone kind of said, what's David Cronenberg do, you could just show them the fly? Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think you could also point to stuff like The Brood or later stuff. You know, if you really wanted to go off the deep end, you could show people Naked Lunch and Existence. But I think mm. if you wanted to kind of 
boil down his approach to the human body, but have it wrapped in a a plot that is uh, sensical. <laughs> uh, or not a, a thinly veiled uh, metaphor for his failing marriage and his bitter divorce. Mm. Uh, the Fly is a pretty good way of doing that because it's kind of seems to be the point where he m- was moving further away from the out and out body horror to exploring it in a more, in sort of more realistic, less pulpy uh, sort of background. So uh, it's a remake. Uh, it's a you know a lot of people have this debate of uh, any remakes being better than originals. It's fair to say the fly is a lot different to its uh, kind mm-hmm. of B movie um, uh, kind of earlier interpretation in which uh, a fly and a man swap heads. Uh, this uh, kind of makes a, a, a kind of horrifying <laughs> take on that source material um, and has uh, Jeff Goldblum's scientist. Uh, Seth Brundle kind of fused with a fly and he gets on a teleportation device with him and he slowly kind of becomes a little bit fly-like and then before turning into ah oh, one of the most repellent character, like kind of creatures <laughs> you'll ever see uh, in a in a film uh, and still the the bits where he is vomiting kind of acid on um you know Davis's kind of bosses ankles and wrists it just goes through me I kind of still have to look away in horror yeah, the bit that I always look away from is when he hasn't quite... He's not mutated so much. He still looks vaguely human, but he goes to the bar and has the arm wrestling contest with someone. Mm, yes. And he demonstrates his fly-enhanced strength mm-hmm. by breaking the guy's hand and the bone juts out. It's really, really tough to watch. Yeah. Um, and we I said this before um, we went on and started recording, but, like, when I was younger, I went for a phase of, like, watching this film, like, once every week around that, and that's really fucked up. Like, I kind of think that now, and, like, I've not watched it for several years, but I know it so well, because um, I watched it a lot when I was younger. Oh, I, I kind of feel like this is a little bit, like, kind of counselling it. I, I went through a similar phase with The, the Thing, which right. I think is... Uh, very kind of, uh, I always kind of think of those two in tandem, even though they were made kind of years apart and they don't really have that much in common in terms of like production producers or anything like that. But they're both remakes of films from the fifties that uh, are of varying quality. Like the, the hat, the, the thing from another world is a really great fifties sci-fi and the fifties the version of the fly is kind of cheesy, but good fun. Mm. But they both take these premises and then allow their individual creators to, apply their own personal style and their own obsessions to it. Certainly in the case of uh, in the case of The Fly, you can really see David Cronenberg's fascination with the human body and the ways in which he can mutate it and destroy it played out in a way which is uh, by turns absolutely horrifying. Mm. <laughs> um, because even you know, to compare it to the thing again, the Brundle Fly is one of, as I say, it's one of the most repellent screen creatures ever created. It looks absolutely horrifying in every stage of his kind of evolution or devolution into it is is really tough to watch. Whereas I think with the thing, even though the, some of the creature effects are disgusting, there's still this kind of fascinating sense to, of trying to figure out, you know, what each part of it represents. You know, which part of it is, you know, from the dogs that it's consumed and stuff like that. Mm. Uh, where so there's kind of this kind of fun gooey creature effect to it whereas the fly it just leaves you kind of like shivering in disgust for the whole most of the movie mm. yeah um 
Did you ever see The Fly 2? No, I heard that it's not bad, but not great. Um, I will go on the record and say that it's exactly that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Eric Stoltz kind of picked up the role as uh, uh, kind of... Uh, I can't, oh shit, I've seen it quite a few times, but I can't remember if he's a researcher or like in, and like, cause the film starts with Gina Davis giving birth to like a pupae. Uh, but then I think that's a dream. Um, we really should make a podcast where I attempt to remember films <laughs> that, I, that I think I remember better. Uh, but The Fly 2 has got some very good jumps in with like mutant dogs and shit. Um, but mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's generally kind of, Unnecessary, but not as bad as it could have been. Yeah, the I think the the pupae thing is also in the first one because she has that nightmare, and it is that's another thing that's just really really horrifying. <laughs> oh no, yeah, yeah, because it's pretty much the exact exact reshoot of the scene, but with without Gina Davis. Ah, uh, and without David Cronenberg's hands playing the Doctor's hands. Yeah, that's that's messed up, man. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm glad he went into filmmaking and didn't con- continue his career in medicine. Because yeah. I feel he, we would be talking about him in the way that we talk about Mengele if he had stayed in the medical profession. Or at least Shipman. He could have at least Shipman. Uh, he yeah. could have been Canada's Shipman. Yeah, yeah. this has got dark very quick, hasn't it? <laughs> Sweet Jesus, he's a respected filmmaker. <laughs> like, we've compared him to Joseph Mengele and Harold Shipman. Well, if he didn't invite the comparisons, we wouldn't make them. Yeah. All right, fair enough. He's asking for it, I guess. Um, but yeah, the fly, uh, it's fucking disgusting, but also amazing. Um, It's great that it turns like this, these kind of horrible creature effects into something that's genuinely affecting and tragic. Yes. Because the ending is, is very much a kind of, it's less a kind of kill it with fire and more a kind of kill me with fire. Yeah. It's, uh, kind of like that scene in Alien Resurrection with all of the cloned Ripley's, but not ridiculous. Yeah. Genuinely kind of horrifying. Ah, oh, you just reminded me sad. about Alien Resurrection. Yeah, yeah sorry. Um, uh, gonna move, uh, from kind of horrible body horror, uh, vomiting on people's joints, uh, to something altogether, uh, more literate. Uh, we're talking about, uh, we've got a couple of films we're going to talk about now, which are, are kind of old shot reverse shot favourites, uh, the uh, first of which is Curtis Hansen's Wonder Boys. So is he any good? No, not yet he is. Man, well, I'm going to read it anyway. Uh, Crabs, come on, will you? He's one of my students, for Christ's sakes. Uh-huh. Besides, I'm not sure if he's... Uh... He is, I'm sure. Take my word for it. I see myself in him. Oh, I'm sure you do. But it's a little more complicated than that. Besides, uh, he's a little scattered right now. He almost did something really stupid tonight. I don't think he needs sexual confusion to mix up the stool anymore. On the contrary, I think it might be just a ticket. Um, I came up with a, a little, little witty phrase about Wonder Boys, uh, and uh, I'll see if it will get this conversation started. As uh, for a film about literature, right? Okay, bear with me. Mm-hmm. It's very much a film with perfect chemistry. Ooh, very nice. Um, because uh, like practically every casting decision is it works kind of beautifully right down to even the tiny roles um, of uh, 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 kind of seemingly insignificant characters kind of works beautifully. And, and it's, it's a thing where uh, at that point we weren't quite used to seeing Robert Downey Jr. Uh, back on our screens. And mm. he adds the film, adds a kind of a dangerous energy to the film, but plays very well off. He doesn't kind of swarm the screen because he could quite easily just consume 
his scenes with uh, Tobey Maguire and, and Michael Douglas, but he doesn't. And Michael Douglas is still able to anchor the film in what is probably one of his best performances. Yeah, I'd definitely say that that's, for me, that's up there, one of his best. It's definitely one of his, because when I think of Michael Douglas, I, you know, everyone always talks about Gordon Gecko and things like that. I've never really liked Water I find it a little didactic and a little tough to take. Mm. And even though his performance is, you know, it's very kind of powerful and very, uh, makes a big impression and that's why it's so iconic. It is very much kind of like, I am acting. Mm. Oh, yeah. I am making big speeches, um, which can get a bit tiresome. Whereas in Wonder Boys, he is, he's a lot more subdued and a lot more subtle whilst also playing this guy, convincingly playing someone whose uh, personal and professional life are, are kind of shriveling around him. Yeah. Um, I never think of Wall Street, because, um, again, I really don't like Wall Street very much. I always think of Romancing the Stone, if I think of Michael Douglas, mm. uh, especially the bit where he's in that kind of white suit uh, towards the end, where he kind of, like, you know, you think only Michael Douglas could wear that and get away with it. Mm. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's uh, but now yeah, Wonder Boys makes you see him in, in an altogether different light. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's also, I think you could say that it's one of the best performances for pretty much any of those three main kind of male characters because Tobey Maguire is someone who can be quite good, but I think is generally not pushed very hard. But mm. there, he's perfect as a guy who is, you know, he's having a, you know, kind of a quarter-life crisis. He's a guy who obviously has talent as a writer, but also is vaguely suicidal. Um, it's a lot of, lots of vaguely things in this episode, apparently. Mm. Uh, and as someone who is having a real crisis of, you know, his identity in, in every possible way as a writer, you know, his sexual identity, he's kind of questioning all these things. And he conveys that very, very well without being, like, overplaying it or acting sort of really tortured yeah you know he's he's not constantly crying he's he just kind of gives the sense of someone who's very lost and looking for guidance and he plays very well off of uh off of michael douglas but also uh robert downey jr kind of just has an absolute ball with a character who is incredibly kind of uh charismatic and who but also has this vaguely like uh predatory kind of feel to him because you know because he plays the film for people who don't know what Wonder Boys is it's based on a novel by Michael Chabon one of the where an amazing novel by Michael Chabon uh, in which uh, Michael Douglas plays a man named Grady Tripp who is a a writer who had written one like really great novel years before and he's been struggling to write a second one and he works at kind of a small college that he doesn't really care for and he's uh, having an, uh, an affair with a married woman, and his whole he's got all this all this stuff going on in his life, and then his one of his students, played by Maguire, he kind of gets involved in his life, and they have to deal with the corpse of a dead dog uh, and go on a bit of an adventure together. And um, his literary agent, played by Robert Downey Jr., who I think mainly spends his time in New York, comes by to visit him to see what the hell's happening with his second novel called Wonder Boys, and he, he shows up and he's you know, tremendous fun and, and a lively character to be around, but there's also this sense of uh, that he could, if he wanted to, he could probably make Grady's life a real hell. If he just kind of says, you know, where is this novel that you've been writing for five years, wherever it is, mm. and really pushes him. 
Yeah, and kind of everything, it, it's kind of set over a weekend. I mean, it's difficult to remember that because so much kind of happens and goes wrong mm. in that time. Um, it's a film which is, I we have said this before, um, it does have a little bit of a cop-out ending, um, mm. but I'm so willing to forget uh, that because the rest of the film is so goddamn enjoyable. It is. It's it's really funny, but whilst also being kind of deadly serious when it needs to be in treating the kind of emotional problems of the characters, but also having this kind of slightly acidic kind of sense of humour in the way that these these characters bicker and kind of play off of each other. Um, given how good Michael Chabon's uh, books are, um, he's kind of very much underrepresented in adaptations. Wonder Boys is probably the, the most high, high profile of his. Um, the Yiddish Policeman's Union, which I would absolutely fucking kill to see the Coen brothers adapt. Um, but I don't think that's ever going to happen. Um, and also the adventures of, uh, amazing adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which is another kind of incredible book of his that would make, probably make a TV series out of that because it's quite dense. Um, but he doesn't really, he's not really been well served by Hollywood. I found out whilst researching this episode, uh, again, a shock to our listeners that this is researched, um, that they actually did make a film of the mysteries of Pittsburgh. Uh, did you know this? I did. It's also, isn't it directed by the guy who did Dodgeball? It is, yeah. Um, and yeah. I, I was just like, how did this kind of, it's, I mean, obviously, I, I'm just looking at the, the poster, it looks dreadful. <laughs> um, and it is a film that has the cast list is and Nick Nolte at the end. Um, <laughs> and it also features Sienna Miller, who is, let's face it, no Meryl Streep. Um, but did it go down very badly or something? I don't think it made a huge amount of money. I think it, it basically didn't go down at all. I think people didn't really pay much attention to it because it didn't have a... It obviously has great pedigree and it's, it's a Shabon novel, which is, you know, very acclaimed, but I don't think anyone really cared that much for it um well i can i can put you out of your misery uh and mm. i've just gone on to rotten tomatoes uh seven percent ah okay so uh, i guess um, people really didn't like it we all know that rotten tomatoes is the final word on the film because uh, mm. it's either good or bad there is no in between uh it is it is rotten seven percent so uh stay uh well clear of that one yeah it's really just kind of perplexing, the films of his that people actually tried to make. I mean, I know that uh, Stephen Doldry was attached to direct Cavalier and Clay for something like half a decade. I remember they they kept trying to get it made and they didn't happen. And then having seen most of Stephen Doldry's films, I'm kind of pleased. (laughs) Uh, I don't want him to kind of do an extremely loud and incredibly close Mm. uh, with... uh, with the amazing adventures of Cavalier and Clay, yeah, that would yeah. that'd be awful. Um, I, I would I would campaign eagerly for a, a film version of um, the Yiddish Policeman's Union because that is a very mm. uh, uh, kind of brilliantly kind of funny, uh, uh, but also kind of very uh, lean, uh, pulpy kind of detective story set against this kind of amazing backdrop where. Uh, uh, the state of Israel was never created, and uh, the the Jews were re re kind of located to Alaska, uh, and it kind of follows a, a detective trying to solve a murder in the last month of the lease being up, uh, and it's crazy. Have you read that book? Have you read that one? I have. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic, it's, isn't it? 
it's a really great, it's definitely a really great world. I would really like to see it explored. I remember not being that engaged by the detective story, but I did love this vision of a of an alternate reality. And but even like just like the tiny details, like one character talks about how much they loved Orson Welles' version of Heart of Darkness, mm. which is a a lovely little uh, detail to throw in there of how different their version of uh, of the world is compared to compared to what actually happened but yeah like the coen brothers were attached to direct it for a really long time and i think that for whatever reason maybe they couldn't get the funding or they couldn't quite figure out how to do it it just never happened but i think they funneled a lot of that kind of interest in kind of jewish heritage and the instantness of, of jewish society into uh, a serious man mm. which has a very similar kind of feel to it yeah sure Anyway, we we need to stop talking about films that haven't been made, uh, that we want to be made, and talk about films uh, that have been made. Um, And the next film on our list has definitely been made, because we go on about it quite a lot on this podcast. Um, I think that kind of last time we covered it was in uh, maybe two years ago in our um, uh, education podcast. We talked about great film mentors. Um, We're talking about the film Roger Dodger. What's happening right now is important only in the context of our continuing evolution as a species. Roger, Roger, all I'm saying is that I wish my sister would learn to read a subway map. And by saying that, you disregard the primary importance of utility in human relationships. Our ability, man's, men's ability to read maps, to navigate, makes us useful. You should discourage your sister from even looking at a map. Are you saying uh, that we women have an inferior sense of direction? Which way is North, Joyce, without looking around? What? You heard me. Point north, quick. North, north, quick. North, um, north, 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 north. Are you right? He's right. He's right. Very impressive. Oh. <laughs> As she has throughout history, the female responds to the male who displays the most utility. By honing those skills which make me useful, I stave off my inevitable obsolescence. So what? You sit home on weekends honing your ability to program a VCR? Uh, Roger Dodger is a bit of a uh odd one uh it kind of got a lot of kind of good notices but seems to have kind of slipped through the cracks most people know it now as the kind of the, the breakthrough film for kind of jesse eisenberg um but really it's uh a, you know one of those films where a character actor in this case campbell scott um who's spent you know decades working on the fringes of films and got the occasional lead role here and there actually gets to you know consume a film and by God, does he consume this film? He, he really does. He takes advantage of this, playing this Lothario character and this uh, pickup artist, essentially, who is saddled with his nephew and decides to show him the tricks of the trade and how to pick up women in bars in New York and has a great op- a great deal of fun playing him as a uh, kind of a likeable, but not too likeable cat mm. you know there's a sense you you like playing hanging around him because he's he's you know he has this great charisma and he you you kind of see him through the eyes of jesse eisenberg's character who looks at them as you know this guy who's sort of great with women and seems to be able to have every woman he wants and knows how to manipulate people but you know as you also get the sense from seeing him through the eyes of for example you know like the, the women that he has slept with in the past and who he's kind of hurt uh that he is that his way of life is not 
uh, without kind of consequence. Mm. In in the film, like you say, we 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 kind of immediately view him through Jesse Eisenberg's uh, kind of perspective, where as a person that you would look up to if you were very emotionally immature and kind of certainly sexually immature, you would think, wow, this guy's amazing. And then as soon as you start to peel back the layers, he becomes a very tragic figure uh, and also uh, it points deeply, deeply unpleasant. Yeah, there's definitely certain points in the third act, which we won't talk about, where the uh, the kind of quest for sex that they go on over the course of this evening kind of goes into some very kind of grimy and uh, kind of disturbing and weird uh, places. Uh, but I think that what's really great about the film is it does really kind of build to that. That darkness is always there under the surface, uh, but it, it holds back enough that you only really kind of see it fully realised at the point that Jesse Eisenberg sees it. Mm, For yeah. most of it, he's just having a, a good time and kind of in awe of everything around him. Uh, but as the the film goes on, he realises that things are not as kind of, this way of life is not as great as he thinks it is. It is so nice to see uh, Campbell Scott getting uh, a um, uh, a part like this. And I think he's a producer on the film. Um, but yeah, he's, he's someone who has always been there and thereabouts in kind of films. Uh, he had a lead uh, in a film a couple of years before, the David Mamet film uh, called The Spanish Prisoner. He was very good in that. But, he, you know, he was always kind of playing the same sort of characters. And to watch him do this is, is it's kind of hugely enjoyable. And it's so rare that you see a character actor suddenly shunted uh, into the spotlight in such a way that someone who perhaps hasn't been thought of as being a ladies' man uh, can just do that. Yeah, you kind of get the feeling that he would, in a few years' time, maybe be ripe for a Quentin Tarantino-style career kind of reassessment Mm. if he got the right juicy role. Because at the moment, I think he mainly is on uh, television. I think he plays like a Russian gangster character on the show Royal Pains, which... uh, isn't a great show. It's a very fluffy kind of medical show, but he, uh, I think, you know, probably paid for his house. Yeah. So maybe when that show finishes, he can, uh, find someone who can give him a role as good as this one again. Cause he, this role certainly suggests that he has this great untapped potential for playing, you know, both kind of easy kind of charm and charisma and, and genuine kind of emotional, uh, damage in a way that feels real and compelling mm. and that he doesn't really get a chance to do now. Yeah. It's, it's a very kind of subtle performance in the sense that the film does take the character of Roger and his, and his kind of worldview to some very dark places. There is also a kind of redemptive element to that kind of, that kind of character arc, which isn't perhaps as clumsy as let's say the wonder boys redemptive arc is. Yeah, because I think it does suggest that he's a, he's kind of a decent guy at heart, but that his his kind of myopic pursuit of sex means that he doesn't really get many opportunities to display that. Mm. And while having Jesse Eisenberg's character following around gives him a chance to show off and to kind of uh, luxuriate in being someone's hero for a brief period of time, it also 
exposes him to judgment in a way that I think he probably avoids a lot of the time mm. when he uh, when he doesn't have someone tailing him for the night. Yeah, and especially when it comes to you know you see him trying to kind of rekindle a romance with a woman that he's broken up with, and uh, for I think that's kind of a key moment in the film because you initially think that their interaction because of how he interacts with everyone else in the film is going to be kind of very lighthearted and then it's deadly serious as you realise that he's actually can be a very nasty and dark guy uh, and I think that the, the, the turn of that is handled brilliantly by him and uh, the film doesn't get super moralistic about his lifestyle choices but it does I think it does kind of point to the way that the things that he does could become kind of spiritually deadening over over time. Worth noting, this film, uh, I don't know if you ever noticed it, I mean, I've seen the film quite a few times now, uh, music's dreadful. Yeah, it is pretty tra- it, I I noticed that when I re-watched it, re-watched it recently. Uh, not only is, like, the music, because it's, like, early 2000s dance music in a lot of the clubs and stuff, and it just sounds awful, but the score isn't, particularly good either. Yeah, and I've, I'm kind of listening to the director's commentary, I think, and he was like, because it's kind of a kind of a quite childlike kind of instrument, like a little xylophone or something, uh, that's got like a kind of drum and bass behind it, and he was like, well, Roger is quite childlike, so that's why I went for that. I'm just like, dude, that's a fucking terrible creative decision you just made there. And it's <laughs> not quite enough to jolt you out of it, uh, but yeah, rubbish music. Okay, next film, uh, kind of seminal. Uh, documentary uh, we're going to talk about um, quite a lot of documentaries on this top 100 um, this is one of the best ones of recent years uh, we're going to talk about uh, Dig they're just our buddies they're our alter egos in some way inspiring each other to create and be successful our bands played together a lot over the next couple of years and it was rock say, you know, well, what music do you like at the moment? And I would say, you know, Brian Jonestown Massacre and the Dandy Warhols. Jonestown and the Dandies have a window of opportunity. They can relate to suburban people, drug people, and they can also relate to literary people and also to people who have some real knowledge of how music develops. Uh, Dig, um, is the story of a kind of fascinatingly shot, kind of access all areas style. The director, Omdi Timina, she had kind of unprecedented access to, to two bands who kind of came out of the same scene. Uh, the first was a band called the Dandy Warhols, uh, and the second was a band called the Brian Jonestown Massacre, and they were kind of, they would tour together and party together and hang out together. And uh, But their careers took very different paths. Um, the Dandy Warhols kind of uh, got signed to a big label and kind of had some, success in America but not too much but then got really successful in Europe and then you know kind of turned into something the Brian Jones Massacre not so much uh, kind of weighed down a little bit by the fact that their lead singer uh, Anton Newcomb uh, appears to be a psychopath um, <laughs> that said having watched the film several times I'm still not sure who comes out of it worse yeah it's, it's very interesting because I was reading about the film in pre- preparation for this and uh, a lot of people 
talking about the film say that it's really, really harsh on Anton Newcomb and that it, it kind of sides too much with the dandy Warhol. I don't really think that's true. Oh, <laughs> no, they, they, especially the lead singer, is it Courtney Taylor? Taylor, is that his name? Yeah, uh, he, Courtney he, Taylor, Taylor. He comes out of it quite badly. Yeah, I think Anton Newcomb maybe comes out of it badly in a different way mm. in that he, in the film, he comes across as someone who is, you know, kind of furiously creative, releasing three albums in one year. Uh, and like really uncompromising and those two things don't necessarily work if you want to keep a band together <laughs> and if people around you don't seem to be working out uh, and so there's this sense that he is a, a kind of a tragic figure in that he is someone who has all of these ideas and he just can't seem to get out of his own way in order to make them kind of happen in the best way in terms of keeping a band together in terms of getting signed whereas you know, Courtney Taylor Taylor and the Dandy Warhols come across as kind of opportunists mm. and as people who were happy to hang out with the Brian Jones Towns Massacre uh, when they were kind of all poor and kind of getting drunk and fucked up in Portland. But then soon as labels come around and they realise that they have nice harmonies and everything, they quickly leave them behind. Uh, and so you, you get the sense that they they come off badly, but in very different ways. Yeah, there's a there's a bit where um, the Dandy Warhols are having a photo shoot, and to give them more edge, they go and have it shot at the the, the kind of Brian Jones Massacre house uh, because there genuinely is like a group of people just there, kind of shooting heroin and just having a bad time. But to give themselves, make themselves look a bit more kind of rock, uh, they do it, and it's kind of a really shameless. <laughs> Uh, mm. Thing they did, and I, th- I think that it's I think it's quite weird in a way that because Courtney Taylor Taylor uh, narrates the film, and he isn't stupid. He must have some kind of self awareness. Um, he must know that he you know he doesn't come out of it particularly well, but still contributes in that way. Yeah, I think there may have been either the film changed between him recording his his voiceover, or there's some disingenuousness on the part of the director because. When it starts out, you know, he's talking about Anton Newcomb and he says, you know, we were, he was my best friend, we were enemies, and, but he was also, you know, my enemy. And all this kind of setting up the dichotomy of their relationship and how they started at one place together and then they just veered off and ended up kind of hating each other. Mm. Um, yeah, you kind of wonder how much of that is like he recorded it and then in the editing, the film became something very different because they, they shot for something like seven years. And oh, this, yes covers a huge, this massive chunk of the histories of both bands. And it's easy to imagine him recording voiceover in, at some point, like a year before the film came out. And then when they assembled the story and they kind of constructed the arc, it ended up being a lot, it ended up being a lot different when he agreed to narrate it. Mm. Um, it's difficult to think of a rock documentary where it is, as intense over such a long period of time. Uh, I seem to remember seeing an interview with Andy Timmer and she basically said, they were like, why did you stop there? And she was like, I, I just fucking have to, because if I didn't, <laughs> I'd end up dead. Yeah, some of the... Uh, it's, it's kind of that great thing of, like, back days with a real hard-rocking band where there's a great sense of fun and there's them kind of messing around, but there's also real hardcore drug use mm. and getting into massive fights on stage and picking fights with the audience and with each other. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, it also makes me kind of, well, I mean, it, it's uh, a great kind of, even though they don't come out of it too well, it's a great kind of, uh, and most people's first experience or exposure to the, the Brian Jones-style massacre because uh, anyone who kind of wasn't kind of too clued up on that scene probably won't have heard of them before they saw the film, being presumptuous there. I, it was certainly the case for me. Um, mm, but the, me the film also kind of jerks you into reminding you how good the first two Dandy Warhol albums were. Yeah, because obviously it covers their whole rise, really, and you get to see them in their rawest form and how they were this kind of really interesting and exciting band who were kind of both sincere in that they could write really great pop tunes but also had this kind of ironic kind of distance from it. And it was there was kind of a nice interplay between that. Uh, and at a certain point, they just became completely ironic <laughs> and stopped seeming to care about anything. And I think it's nice seeing them in that that kind of early nebulous stage. And then also it gives you a real clear shot of how they changed once they actually got successful. Mm. Um, but yeah, dig. Uh, a, a great rock doc, uh, as it were. Uh, talking about documentaries, our next film is also a documentary, but one that's altogether different. Um, we talk about Werner Herzog's Grizzly Man. Animals rule. Timothy conquered. Fuck you, Park Service. Okay. It is clear to me that the Park Service is not Treadwell's real enemy. There's a larger, more implacable adversary out there. The people's world and civilization. Ah, Timothy, I'm getting a bad feeling about you. He only has mockery and contempt for it. Oh, I saw you on David Letterman. You're <laughs> fairly entertaining. His rage is almost incandescent, artistic. The actor in his film has taken over from the filmmaker. I have seen this madness before on a film set. But Treadwell is not an actor in opposition to a director or a producer. He's fighting civilization itself. It is the same civilization that cast Thoreau out of Walden and John Muir into the wild. Animals roll. Um, don't feed the bears. That's the the, the lesson I've learned from this film. Yeah. Um, don't feed the bears, but foxes are also cute. Yes, they are. Uh, a film for anyone who doesn't know. Uh, a film about a man called Timothy Treadwell, uh, who could be seen as the uh, titular grizzly man who spent his life living amongst grizzly bears in the kind of Alaska... Is it Alaskan wilds? I believe so, yeah. Um, and kind of uh, films a lot of his uh, adventures. Uh, he kind of sees himself as a kind of, like, maverick, uh, kind of ecologist, I guess, uh, and also sees himself as kind of being one with the bears. Um, a kind of theory that is blown out of the water when a bear eats him. Um, and the film kind of... Is Werner Herzog putting together this this kind of portrait of a man who lived his life very much on the edge of sanity, um, but managed to capture something quite beautiful in the process, also insane. Yeah, that, that it kind of encapsulates a lot of things that Herzog does in his both his fictional films and his documentaries, the idea of uh, people on the edge of society, people who are in some way kind of transcendent human beings in that they they view the world in a way that is completely different to everyone else but how that same that same transcendence 
also comes with you know the danger of destroying yourself, which obviously is what happened in the case of Timothy Treadwell. Uh, and I think he, I think he approaches it with a great deal of empathy for Timothy Treadwell and a desire to understand why he, you know, every year he would go up and stay with the Bears and why he went against the advice of uh, genuine kind of wildlife preservationists who he deeply distrusted and didn't think uh, had the uh, the best interests of the Bears at heart and how that manifested itself in this kind of bitterness and this paranoia. You do get a sense that he was someone who clearly had the best of intentions, but that his he used his attempts to kind of talk about, to, to ex, express his passion for, you know, protecting wildlife in a way that maybe was trying to make up for whatever personal failings he had and how that eventually consumed him. Mm. Yeah. Um, there's a bit of, I'd say this, this, this documentary is a kind of a stone cold masterpiece um, and uh, Herzog kind of gets under the skin of someone who it would be quite easily to either take the piss out of or misunderstand um, better than any other director probably could. But he did draw criticism and uh, for one part of the film in particular, um, which I'm still not sure how to feel about, where um, obviously this guy filmed everything um, and he also inadvertently kind of captured his own death. And it wasn't just his own death, his girlfriend, who was a reticent... Uh, companion on some of these trips uh, she also died uh, in the kind of the bear attack um, and uh, it was filmed in audio only um, and in we never get to hear it or or kind of even kind of get close to it but Werner Herzog chooses to have a, a moment where he listens to it and films himself listening to it and then tells uh, is it Timothy Trevor's sister to, to and it's, it's, it's like a, a, an old friend of an his, old friend of his yeah, he would right. stay with on his trips. Yeah, uh, he basically then tells her to never listen to it and to destroy it. Um, now, he draw quite a lot of criticism for that, um, in the sense that, you know, well, if you, you're going to do it, you know, why you, why you, you know, don't show it, don't even show yourself listening to it, because, you know, what you're saying, you're okay to listen to it when no one else is. Um I, I, I keep looking at the film every time I see it, and I think if this wasn't in there, I don't think it would make a great deal of difference. I can kind of see that, but I do think it's a really important moment because of the way it's framed, because the focus isn't really on Herzog, because he has his back to the camera, and he his face is, he doesn't even really show his face at all. It's just him talk, him listening, and he only listens to probably seemingly about 30 seconds of it before telling them to turn it off. Mm. And during that time, the camera is actually, the focus is actually on the woman and her reaction to his reaction. And I think that makes it very, very, I think that makes it more powerful. It makes it a really kind of uh, emotionally very difficult moment. Uh, I think that it really adds something to the film in, in adding a a real human component to a story that he treats very respectfully, but which I think without that could have been very dry and, and more about him kind of philosophy uh, philo philosophizing about you know the bears and you know fear murder and all that sort of stuff i think that having her reaction in the film really uh 
it really adds something to it for me. I think it, it is kind of this really kind of gut punch of a moment. And I think the film, because it avoids being kind of this, this tabloidy expose so much, it kind of earns the chance to have this one kind of really powerful emotional moment. Hmm. Do you, do you think that like, because uh, I mean, I, I, I like, even though you, you just made a compelling case for it being in, uh, I, I kind of still don't know how to feel about that, that moment in the, in the sense that, um, like, I don't know how I'd feel if they actually played that bit of it in the film. Um, and I don't kind of think it would have added anything if they, I don't think it would have missed anything if they'd left it out. Um, so yeah, I'm not really sure how to feel about that whole kind of episode because he did get quite a lot of, um, Quite hostile flack, especially from um, well, it's mainly from documentary makers rather than um, rather than uh, actual critics. Is it more for including making it about him in that moment? Yes, I think that's that's, the, that's the primary criticism. Yeah, like, like I say, I don't think it's making it about him, but about how using himself as a vessel to uh, bring a, a reaction out of his subject. Uh, in that moment, mm. um, but I can definitely see the idea that that you know you are he, that is the moment when he really kind of takes center stage, and it's one of the the times when one of the few times where he appears on screen as opposed to you know kind of talking in great kind of uh, Teutonic voiceover. Um, is Christy Man that kind of watershed moment for Werner Herzog in the sense that uh, he seemed to become something slightly pop cultural um, around then? Uh, no coincidence he kind of started cropping up in things more um around the same time um uh the the mark kermode interview with him where he got shot uh, <laughs> with an air rifle and he kind of ceased being a slightly eccentric director um and kind of occasional presence in a film you know not quite on film um but then became something else. I mean, like, I mean, just this week we've had it announced that he's going to be starring in an episode of Parts of Recreation. Um, do you think that the Grizzly Man, in a way, misrepresents Werner Herzog? I think it's it kind of does in that it's very one-dimensional. Mm. And the way I would illustrate that is if you talk about, like, Paul F. Tompkins's impression of Werner Herzog, which has kind of become its own thing, that he's he's done on Comedy Bang Bang podcast and the TV show, and he, he's done, you know, in comedy shows quite a bit. It's very it's very funny, but it also is very uh, restrictive in that it kind of boils his persona to being this guy who's constantly obsessed with, you know, man versus nature and murder and death and, you know, darkness and things like that. And obviously those are things that he has been pre- preoccupied with throughout his whole career. But I think that, that it kind of boiled it it became this thing for a lot of people that boiled him down to a single set of characteristics uh and yeah i think that it does it, it's kind of like herzog from concentrate really or something you know it kind of just makes him a lot more simplistic as a as a as a figure than he is but at the same time that film was such kind of a watershed thing for him in terms of getting all this attention it became a film that has has had quite a long afterlife to, you know, certainly in the case of me, like it's a film that uh, if I ask people if they've seen it and they say no, 
it's the sort of film where I will like rush out and like grab my DVD and lend it to them and say you have to watch it. You know, it's, it's something a film that I think a lot of people are quite evangelical about, and I think that um, it, it probably exposed a lot of people to his work uh, who weren't just kind of like cinephiles or even just casual cinema fans who maybe knew Fitzcarraldo and Aguirre: The Wrath of God, but didn't really know the rest of the stuff they'd done. Yeah. Um, great soundtrack, uh, in mm. contrast to, to Roger Dodger earlier. Uh, Richard Thompson does the soundtrack. And I think uh, Jim O'Rourke produced it. Jim O'Rourke produced quite a few uh, Wilco records and that kind of like uh, new wave Americana type thing. Um, yeah, beautiful soundtrack. Also, um, a bit of trivia um, that I'll give you about Timothy Treadwell. Um, he claims, okay, um, that he, because it, it is uh, alluded to, and like I've said in the film, that he had a lot of kind of personal problems with alcohol and also with drugs. Um, but he said he became an alcoholic after he lost lost out in the role, uh, lost out in, in an audition to play the role of Woody in Cheers. Yeah, that's, I don't know how true that is, but if it's, if it is true, I think it's a fascinating alternate reality to imagine. <laughs> yeah. We could have, we could have had a documentary about Woody Harrelson being killed by bears. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it, it is a weird, it's, it's very strange that in this film that, you know, has, I think, I think that's one of the great things about Herzog as a documentarian. He's very good at kind of drawing out these really weird little moments in people's lives. And for that one in a film, which is a very kind of serious, uh, examination of what led this man to get killed by a bear to just suddenly have this little tangent where they're talking about, oh yeah, he he, he was nearly on one of the biggest sitcoms in history. Mm. Um, and you just kind of think that's just kind of bizarre that he would, this man who seems to be so on the fringes at one point seemed like a, a an audition away from being at the centre of kind of pop culture. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's our sick film of this mm-hmm. list uh, number seven is an altogether different affair uh, we're talking about um, a film that I'm I will kind of safely say will shit you up um, we are talking about the uh, J-horror classic Ringu sound pretentious by giving it his like proper name it's probably not even that um but yeah um kind of became a bit hackney didn't it in the kind of early 2000 the whole j-horror thing kind of girls with like white dresses on kind of with lank kind of black hair crawling around shitting people up but this man this film this is kind of like uh patient zero for that kind of thing and boy is it scary it is yeah i mean i I saw it after I saw the American remake. Right, okay. Which which is also pretty pretty scary in its own right and especially if uh like my uh, like my friend Graham you uh wait until the film ends and then phone someone's mobile phone after they've watched it for the first time. Mm. Well, uh, it's a very I, good prank. <laughs> I I'm considerably older than you. 
um, and we watched it at university on video, right? And at the end of the video, it had the video. So you could actually watch the uh, Sadako's film uh, after the film had finished. So we did. And this was in the days kind of before mobile phones were popular. You know, it was a long time ago. It was the 90s. It was a different time. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, there would be some smart ringing the landline if people remember what landlines are. Um, and, oh, we fell about laughing after that, after <laughs> firstly being very, very scared. Um, but, yeah, a film that takes a kind of high concept uh, of a kind of cursed videotape um, which is also kind of like a chain letter that will kill you within a set amount of time um, and manages to make it kind of terrifying. It does, yeah. I think it it benefits from... It's certainly in comparison to the American remake, it benefits from being very grimy and very grainy in particular. Mm. Um, there is... It, it doesn't look like a film in some respects. It doesn't have kind of a lot of polish to it. It's very rough. Mm. And I think that adds to the visceral kind of quality of the scares and that sense that there's no... In a similar way to something like The the Blair Witch, when that came out, that had a similar quality where it, it, there's an immediacy to it that places you in the same situation as the characters, and particularly when it forces you to sit down and watch the tape in its entirety, <laughs> which is uh, when you watch it and it's... You know, if it's on video or whatever, and it's a kind of a grainy copy, then that adds to the sense of of the terror and the sense that this ridiculous thing could happen. You yeah. know, and and it, obviously it plays upon. Um, I think in in Japan, especially, there was this kind of, and I think you can see this in in England as well in like the eighties with the whole idea of the video nasties, the idea that technology and particularly videotapes can contain things that can corrupt people and or that can you know unleash some sort of terror by the effect they will have on people and so kind of literalizing that and saying that if you watch this videotape you will die uh, is very effective because it's a way of taking a a kind of a nebulous concern and making it concrete yeah um it's a film that um has some of my favourite kind of sound. Uh, I suppose it's really score, I guess. But like as as uh, the, um, the kind of the, the main protagonist has watched the video, they have seven days uh, to kind of show it to someone else or break the kind of cycle of the curse before they perish. And um, every day is marked by a subtitle that just says like day one, day two, day three, or whatever. And there's just this kind of this kind of stinger sound effect. There's kind of like this boom. It's just really ominous. And every time I hear that noise, I get quite scared. And I don't want to turn on my television. Yeah, it kind of reminds me a little bit of what they do in The Shining. Mm, oh yeah, with the with just the Wednesday and then just a, a brief sting of music, and it's the way that they just kind of break the flow of the story in a very disruptive and uh, kind of shocking way. Um, and it could kind of puncture the atmosphere, but it kind of acts as like a, a, a release valve, and then just suddenly you're kind of like, ah, a bit of a jump scare, and then suddenly you're back into the the, the, the uncertainty and, you know, the, the idea of someone frantically trying to figure out whether or not this curse is real and having weird, weird shit happen around them as a result. Mm. Um, also kind of uh, um, worth pointing out, um, the the film is made pretty much entirely with wholly practical effects, um, mm. and the uh, American remake is not. 
And uh, if you can prove anything, um, it's that digital effects really aren't very scary. Yeah, certainly not early 2000s digital effects. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's, um, there's a lot of CGI horses in that, I think. Mm, horse, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is a horse that runs at, at Naomi Watts in the remake and mm. then and then gets caught in the rudder of a ship or something. Yeah, something like that. I know he dies. Yeah. Did you um, did you ever see the, the American, the sequel to the American remake? I didn't which know. Was like, which was directed by uh, Hideo Nakata or Nagata. Um, it's fucking awful. Really bad. <laughs> really one of the worst films I've ever seen. But that one is all digital effects. So I think that's a case where uh, you really show how the limitations of the first film were obviously a real benefit. Mm. Because if you give the guy that made the original ring uh, the uh, resources that he perhaps wanted, it uh, doesn't end well. Mm. Yeah. Um, it kind of got old quite quickly, didn't it? The the, the J-horror thing. Uh, it became quite hackneyed. Yeah, I think that it, it, it came from Hollywood horror kind of... It had gone through that thing where everyone was trying to be screen, where everyone was trying to be postmodern, ironic, and that kind of ate its own tail. And then The Ring was a huge hit, like a massive monster uh, uh, success. And they just started buying up the licenses to every J horror and K horror mm. film there was. And they just inundated it. And it's really weird. It's one of those things where these trends are so, so short lived that within a couple of years, it's like they never happened. Yeah, it's like that brief remake, brief, brief kind of thing where they were remaking the video nasties from the 80s and then they were remaking, you know, things like Black Christmas and My Bloody Valentine and things like that. And it's just like, that. I kind of almost forgot that actually happened. Or, you know, the the whole thing with the torture porn thing and uh, there being a Saw film every year for seven years. Mm. And then you're just kind of thinking, as soon as the seventh Saw film ended, they stopped being like mainstream horrors that were like that. Mm, yeah. And as like everyone's just completely moved on, which is weird. And, which is a shame, really, because the first Saw came out my first year at uni. And every time I would, every year subsequently like that, whenever I was walking around Sheffield and they changed and there was a new Saw poster, it was kind of like, you know, the leaves turning or something. <laughs> so, oh, <laughs> it's awesome. There's the new Saw film. Oh, yeah. That's that's the way they want this, the change in the seasons now. <laughs> uh, releasing a new Saw film. S- some new horrifying poster on a bus. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, uh, next film uh, we'll talk about. Um, I think might be a uh, contender for the cultiest film of all time. Uh, we're talking about Alex Cox's Repo Man. Hey, look, look at that. Look at those assholes over there. Ordinary fucking people. I hate them. Me too. What do you know? See, an ordinary person spends his life avoiding tense situations. Repo man spends his life getting into tense situations. Let's go get a drink. Um, we did allude to this earlier. It does reference quite explicitly Kiss Me Deadly with its radioactive suitcase. Uh, uh, a film that's hard to kind of condense, but really a story of two repo men who are after a car that in particular has... Uh, special qualities that don't look in the boot uh, oh, and it can fly. Uh, and there's, yeah, the circle jerks are in it. Uh, it's quite hard to explain, isn't it, Repo Man? But it's kind of amazing. Yeah, it seems very easy when you say, like, oh, you know, it's uh, Emilio Estevez 
and he's hanging out with Harry Dean Stanton, their repo men. And you think, okay, it's going to be like a comedy about these two guys going around repossessing people's cars in LA and trying to avoid getting shot, which it is mm. for parts of it. But then there's this entire kind of weird sci-fi element to it. And there's this kind of, uh, kind of broader satirical thing where there's loads of stuff that doesn't have brands on it. So it just says like food mm. can and stuff like that. And there's all these like really weird details. And it's a film that, uh, is kind of over brimming with kind of creativity. And you kind of get the sense that it's the sort of thing that could only happen when you have someone like Alex Cox, who is, uh, someone who's working on a very limited budget, but trying to push uh, every aspect of the film as far as it will go. Uh, and that's kind of what makes it amazing. Mm. And then there's just scenes of just unparalleled weirdness. Like there's a mm. scene where they're just, they're sitting around, stood around a, a burning can, you know, in that kind of typical uh, film uh, cliche, warming their hands around a burning can. Um, and Emilio Estevez's character just kind of drifts up to these older kind of repo men and people who work in the office and they're just talking about how, you know, John Wayne was a fag. Uh, <laughs> just, and it's just kind of completely out of nowhere, but it just adds this really bizarre <laughs> flavour to the film. Um, and it just doesn't seem out of place there at all. Um, uh, and yeah, there's, there's a bit where, um, it's a line that I always use all the time, uh, when, uh, Harry Dean Stanton says, uh, ordinary fucking people and spend their lives trying to, uh, avoid danger. A briefer man tries to spend his life getting into dangerous situations and something like that. Um, I'll always use the first part when describing a boring person. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, um, Emilio Estevez at that point probably shouldn't have been making a film directed by Ice Cox. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a film that I think takes a lot of risks in the, doesn't really settle down as being any one thing. It's kind of a comedy, but it also has action film elements, and it's also kind of a weirdo sci-fi. I think him being kind of, you know, when he was on his um, ascent as a as a young kind of strapping teen idol character, to just kind of suddenly step away from it all and <laughs> make this kind of incredibly bizarre little film uh, speaks volumes about how... Uh, how much he probably wanted to push himself, but also I think of how convincing uh, someone like Alex Cox can be when they have a vision and they just start laying it out to someone and no matter how crazy it is, they just start thinking, I want to be involved in this. I want to see what this will look like on screen. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm so glad he did that because if you were to kind of plot Emilio Estevez's career, he'll, he'll always have Rupert, man. <laughs> you know, it'll always be there. He'll have Max Short, he'll have Maximum Overdrive, which is, you know, uh, could be one of the worst films ever made. Um, Judgment Night, which is the kind of one of the best films ever made, but also terrible. Um, and yeah, he'll always have Reaper Man. So fair play to him. And he'll always have D2, the Mighty Ducks. Oh, yeah. Um, our penultimate film we're going to talk about uh, today is uh, we haven't talked about any films from the 70s. Uh, today so let's just get right in there one of the very very best uh, we're talking about five easy pieces what do you mean you don't make side orders of toast you make sandwiches don't you would you like to talk to the manager hey mac shut up you've got bread and a toaster of some kind i don't make the rules 
Okay, I'll make it as easy for you as I can. I'd like an omelet, plain, and a chicken salad sandwich on wheat toast. No mayonnaise, no butter, no lettuce, and a cup of coffee. Number two, chicken salad sand. Hold the butter, the lettuce, and the mayonnaise, and a cup of coffee. Anything else? Yeah, now all you have to do is hold the chicken, bring me the toast, give me a check for the chicken salad sandwich, and you haven't broken any rules. You want me to hold the chicken, huh? I want you to hold it between your knees. <laughs> you see that sign, sir? Yes, you all have to leave. I'm not taking any more of your smartness and sarcasm. You see this sign? Fantastic that you could figure that all out and lie that down on her so you could come up with a way to get your toast. Fantastic. Yeah, well, I didn't get it, did I? No, but it was very clever. I would have just punched her out. Um, I'm going to say it. Jack Nicholson's best performance. Discuss. I, I would probably go for The Last Detail, which is a film I'm just a huge fan of, and I really think that that's amazing, and he's great in it. But I think that that is kind of his best... Jack Nicholson performance where he's really playing into his persona mm. and really kind of establishing him as this big boisterous figure. But I think in terms of playing slightly against type and being a bit more subdued, uh, this is definitely one of his, it's kind of an atypical performance, but an amazing one. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, uh, uh, five easy pieces starts, uh, with, um, Jack Nicholson's character, uh, Bobby Dupre, is that his name? I, I believe so, yes. Yeah, and he's working in an oil field somewhere, uh, kind of it appears to be a blue-collar worker, but, uh, yeah, it kind of hints at, you know, there's something more to his, his past than, than that, and there's a, a, a wonderful scene where he gets stuck in a traffic jam. Uh, it's one of my favourite scenes, like kind of like moments where he kind of gets on the back of a flatbed truck that's got a piano on the back and starts playing it, um, because he, it turns out that he is uh, a kind of... A, a kind of a child prodigy uh, of the piano, uh, and the title itself uh, refers to a instructional book of how to play the piano called Five Easy Pieces. And he kind of uh, then kind of returns to his family and uh, the, the kind of estranged family that he has, and the kind of very odd relationship he has with all of them, especially his father. And uh, yeah, we kind of get to understand a character whose principal. Uh, kind of tactic in conflict resolution is very much to run away. Yes, yeah, I think it's one of the great American films about unfulfilled potential mm. um, and the idea of people uh, having this great gift and being overwhelmed by it. Because I think there's definitely a sense that he could have been a great like concert pianist if he'd really applied himself. But then at the moment when he was kind of called upon to do it, he just completely ran away from it entirely. And I think that it says a lot there about the idea of uh, the uh, the idea of the American dream being you should be all that you want to be, but you should try and be all that you can be. But that uh, if you're that's kind of prescribed for you, then it can kind of destroy you. And he decided that he would just run away rather than be confronted with all the expectations of his family. Mm. Uh, and it's really good at exploring the the fallout from that in terms of him because he seems to be someone who isn't like massively upset with the way that his life has turned out in kind of a gnashing of the teeth and, and kind of wailing kind of a way. Someone who's just been kind of happy to get drunk and work on oil wigs and stuff. But uh, you can definitely get the sense that his family feel that he's kind of wasted his life and he could have done so much more. 
um, and kind of exploring the interplay between uh, those different kind of perspectives on, you know, his life and, and what it is. Um, yeah. Um, is it a film that is, like, kind of quite easily um, kind of forgotten about in the, the Jack Nicholson canon of films? Um, because he did quite... Yeah, I mean, we, when I first went to university, we studied uh, Jack Nicholson as an example of uh, the star system and when, you know, an actor ceases playing a role and just plays himself and, you know, pretty much every film from The Shining on was, uh, well, Jack with lots of A's. Um, and I kind of grew up watching films like Witches of Eastwick uh, and Batman and that's what I knew uh, Jack Nicholson as. Uh, and I was so stunned to watch Five Easy Pieces to see, holy shit, the man can act. Yeah, his persona, I think this is also true to an extent with someone like Al Pacino, mm. where his persona became so large that it kind of obliterates a lot of the stuff that happened before he became, uh, before he became, you know, this, this very recognisable kind of caricature. You know, I think with Pacino, it helps that a lot of his films would like win Oscars or be nominated for Best Picture and stuff. So they have this kind of place in the culture where they won't be so easily forgotten. Where something like Five Easy Pieces, which was you know critically acclaimed, but didn't have the same sort of traction because you know it was a golden age for Hollywood and everything. So there was a lot of stuff out there to overshadow it. Um, and he made he did so many kind of bigger performances in that same period, uh, it's easy to kind of get overlooked. I think in recent years it's perhaps been reassessed a little bit because a criterion part of the BBS box set, which contained all the, uh, some of the key films made during that era from the BBS uh, uh, production company, uh, you know, so there's that Easy Rider, Head, um, also directed by Bob, Bob Rafelson. Uh, things like that have helped kind of raise its profile uh, considerably in recent years. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. And uh, hopefully kind of Bob Raffleson's uh, kind of profile will rise. I mean, obviously he's very famous, but he is, in terms of that 70s New Hollywood thing, he is often shuffled down the deck um, in very much the same way that Hal Ashby was. Uh, yeah. You know, I, he of... has, there's lots of great stories about Bob Raffleson. I think my favourite one is he was working on Head, the film he made with the monkeys, and I believe one of the monkeys said that they weren't going to do it unless they got a pay raise. And so he stormed up, he he went to his trailer, did a line of cocaine, then marched up to the office where whichever one of the monkeys it was who was refusing to work, and then kicked him down the stairs until he agreed to perform in the film <laughs> <laughs> for the price that they had uh, they had agreed. And yeah... He's got. He's a. He's a very much like a like a Robert Evans, a a larger than life figure from that era. Mm. Uh, have you ever seen Blood and Wine? Uh, no. Is that one that he made sort of towards the end? Way late, yeah. Like uh, in the nineties, it was a, a kind oh. of reunion with Jack Nicholson. Uh, that's really good. I'd recommend that. Um, uh, he, he's a very interesting director, Bob Rafelson. He's he's done a lot of good films. Um, King of Marvin Gardens is really good. There's one that I've never seen, which I'm intrigued by, which is called Stay Hungry. Have you ever seen it? I've heard of it. Does it star... It's Jeff Bridges, um, Jeff Sally Bridges, Field, yes. and Arnold Schwarzenegger in what has nice. been described to me as 
the serious version of dodgeball. Wow. <laughs> so we, you, you're kind of talking about, um, yeah, basically someone trying to save the gym. <laughs> but mm-hmm. yeah, uh, uh, that's five of these pieces. Part of the film, our, uh, final film we're going to talk about today, um, is, um, well, you know, calling it a, a kind of curiosity probably undersells it a bit. Um, we're talking about uh, a very strange little film from a few years ago. Um, it's Nick Whitfield's Skeletons. We've done theatre healing. We've done inner child work. <laughs> We've done flower essence therapy. Yep. Rebirthing and advanced rebirthing. That was amazing. Past life regression. Now that was amazing. I was a seamstress in Elizabethan London. I knew Shakespeare. Um, yes. Um, I'll try and surmise Skeletons for you. It's a British film uh, shot primarily in the East Midlands. Um, uh, kind of mostly Derbyshire, Nottinghamshire, Leicestershire, that kind of thing. Um, and it is about kind of an agency which sends exorcists to uh, kind of um, people who have kind of requested some kind of... Uh, uh, exorcism as therapy um, but they literally go into your house and exercise um, skeletons from your actual cupboard <laughs> uh, I'm, uh, yeah stay with me um, they do so with magic pebbles um, and it's not stupid at all and the film is kind of sort of brilliant in every single way I, I didn't know really what to expect when I first watched it because you hear that premise and you think it's going to be quite wacky um, because you think a British film with that premise would have to play up the comedy. And it does have kind of a very kind of wry sense of humour, but it's also really sad. Mm. It's like such a melancholy film. Um, and it's it's kind of does what uh, a lot of like really great magical realism does, where they kind of take something that is fantastical and makes it kind of feel real and something that could happen in the world and in doing so kind of really draws out the emotions of the characters and you know these two men these kind of exorcists are both portrayed as people who have their own kind of inner demons uh, that they're they're not dealing with and that cause them immense pain yeah i mean yeah the film kind of centers very much around the two uh exorcists uh one called bennett one called davis and uh davis is uh uh in the film, they call it glow searching because he is using the tools that they use to explore these people's kind of past and their secrets. Um, because in, in the film, when they enter uh, these people's uh, kind of past and secrets, they actually kind of find themselves in these memories, kind of moving around and interacting with the characters, etc., etc. Um, but he's using it to kind of, uh, you know, kind of relive moments from his past that made him happy. And those elements, those parts of the film are incredibly sad. Um, and it's a baffling film. When we talked about this briefly before we went on, that no one involved, apart from Jason Isaacs, has done anything since, really. Um, it's not like... Because the film is such a great platform for a unique British voice, um, done exceptionally well. Um, it doesn't kind of fall into a lot of the pitfalls of, of, of British films. Um and I just, I'm just starting to wonder whether it was just too goddamn weird. Yeah, it's it's so unlike 
any British film that was being made at the time and just in general, because it's this kind of lightly whimsical, yet deeply serious exploration of someone having a, an emotional crisis, but using these very kind of fantastical elements. And it has all of these things going for it that you just don't really see in a lot of British films. I think people just didn't know what to do with anyone involved <laughs> afterwards. It's like, how do you make another film after making Skeleton? Yeah, and given that, you know, the British film industry is crying out for unique voices, um, it's, yeah, just absolutely kind of scandalous that, that Nick Whitfield's not done anything else. I mean, like, this was 2010, this film came out, and, you know, his IMDb profile ends at Skeletons. It is. I think that it's a real, real shame that he hasn't been able to get anything made, unless it was, you know, one of those cases where he felt he had one film in him and he got it made and he was, like, happy and he became, like, a cobbler or something. Mm. But, you know, I think that uh, if he is someone who is kind of actively trying to get something, I think it, it, it's the sort of, he's the sort of voice that should be nurtured, but because the British film industry is a, a harsh and barren place, uh, where uh, people cannot find purchase to uh, paraphrase raising Arizona. Um, yeah, I think it's just it's something that's very very hard for people who are want who are original who have original voices and want to make them heard. Unless you know you're Ben Wheatley and you make a film for a fiver. Mm. Yeah, um, I was kind of uh, trying to find some uh, kind of uh, more information about the film uh, online today. Um, research, I believe it's called, um, mm -hmm. and uh, someone described it as Ghostbusters, scripted by Harold Pinter, directed by <laughs> Salvador Dali. And yeah, I think that's that's, that's kind that's of as near as you can get to it in a summation. And you know, if we're talking about uh, the British film industry, which is uh, so you know a topic that we probably should revisit. I mean, we, we kind of did record a, uh, a show about um, the British film industry a few years ago. Um, but it's kind of depressing to see that nothing really changes that much and a unique, uh, beautiful snowflake like skeletons is, uh, just left to melt on, uh, the, uh, hot spoon, uh, of, uh, the British film industry. Um, I've got a story about skeletons, which would be a nice thing okay. to kind of, uh, sign off on. Um, maybe two years ago, I, I was out with friends. Uh, of an evening, uh, and we were in a bar in Salford, and um, I was kind of, I, I'd seen Skeletons the week before, um, and I was just kind of there, and you know, for, for fans of detail of the story, I was I was uh, sipping on a martini, um, and I saw um, the actor, Andrew Buckley, across the, across the room, um, that he plays Bennett in the film. Um, and I was kind of pretty sure it was him, quite a distinctive looking chap. Uh, and I kind of said to my friends, I think that's a guy from a film I watched last week. And they were like, what film is it? And I was like, it's all right, you won't have heard of it. It's about <laughs> these the kind of two exorcists who literally, and then they were just kind of lost interest. Um, and I kind of, uh, just kind of forgot about it. I didn't want to just like kind of be a dick about it. But like one of my mates had had a couple more drinks than me and just kind of went over and was like, you were the film, mate. Uh, and the guy was kind of a bit embarrassed, and he left. Um, and then later on that night, my friends were out having a fag, and 
the actor the Andrew Buckley returned with his girlfriend, and his girlfriend said to my friend who's outside on a cigarette, "He's never been recognised before," and he gets really nervous and and kind of a bit weirded out by it. Um, and then obviously this news filtered back to me, um, and obviously I'd had a few more drinks by then. And so, obviously, been having been told that this actor gets weirded out by people recognising him, I went up to him and said, can I have my photo with you, mate, please? Because I love the fucking together. It was a great film. And he was just like, are you taking the piss? Like, because no one said that <laughs> they liked this film before. He's like, are you being serious? Did you actually like it? I'm like, dude, seriously, man. I thought it was awesome. Um, I didn't say, one day, I will record a podcast about this, uh, about how awesome the film was. Um, but, yeah, he posted a photograph of me. And uh, I've still got it somewhere. Um, I'll endeavour to post it in our, on our Twitter feed. Um, but yeah, I kind of, uh, uh, I've kind of um, had a little encounter uh, with the film that kind of sums up the film's appeal. Very niche, and no one wants to make a big fuss about it. Um, but yeah, except for us. Except for us. Uh, that's another part of our top 100 uh, in the bag. Um, we're kind of, you know, most of the way there now, Ed. Yeah, I'm hoping this is like when you go climbing up a mountain and the second half of it's a bit easier rather than like a marathon where yeah. the second half of it's way harder. Or we could say it's the descent down the mountain, but statistically more people die going down mountains than up. Yeah, but they get down faster. They just may not be alive at the end. Yeah, just, in, just a, kind in, of steep falling. in a body bag. Um, anyway, um, we'll leave it on that glib note. <laughs> um, <laughs> and until our next episode, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Thank you.